to talk about stories, our personal story and the story of life. Stories have a powerful influence in our lives, from the fairy tales that we're enthralled with as children, to the stories we read and listen to about heroes and heroines, to the great spiritual stories and myths which are, the, which are teaching vehicles in every spiritual tradition. Stories have the power to kindle a spark in our imagination. Stories also have the power to connect us with other people and to remind us how very timeless and universal is the search to go beyond conflict and isolation and fear and how very universal is the search to find joy and communion and wisdom. The simple and stark truth of any great story opens us and shows us the way in which heartbreak and connection, grief and joy, the doubt and courage, that they're not the personal territory of any of us. And in seeing this again and again in our lives, we perhaps find the courage not to despair and not to be lost so much in our personal stories. We are taught, we learn, to return again and again, to learn, to deepen, and to explore what is actually possible for us as human beings. Through understanding the universality of so many of our feelings, so many of our journeys, we are encouraged, perhaps, to learn how to embrace challenge and hardship with an open heart, and to find in it deeper levels of compassion, of wisdom, and open-heartedness. Now, the power of any story lies not in that it might make us want to be lost in admiration or applause for someone else, for some hero or heroine. The power of a story is not that it makes us want to live somebody else's story or life. And certainly the power of any story is not just that it has the capacity to make us feel good or to entertain us. The true power of any story is that it returns us to ourselves in a simpler and a clearer way not to be so lost in the endlessly changing details and momentary dramas of our personal stories, but to look anew with clear eyes and heart at our personal story and at the story of our lives 
and to ask ourselves what it is that we need to learn, where it is that we need to let go, what it is that we need to nurture, what it is that we need to understand more clearly and deeply to enable us to live with greatness of heart and spirit. Our stories, our personal stories, begin as we know them with the moment of our birth and they end with our death. Our stories are entwined with countless other stories that again began before we were born and that many times will continue after we die. Our stories are imprinted and informed by many different characters, by people who have hurt us, by people who have loved and inspired us. Our story is surely part of their story. Just as our own story leaves its own imprint upon the world and upon other people through the actions that we engage in and the actions that we leave undone, through the words that we speak and the times that we remain silent, through the moments that we love and the moments that we act in anger and rejection. We imprint and inform the story of others and the story of our world. Within our personal story, there are many chapters, the obvious chapters of our childhood, our adolescence, the time of being an adult, the time of of aging, of being elderly. And within all of these chapters, there are countless other stories and subplots, the moments of loss and gain, the moments of praise, and blame, the moments of success and failure, the moments of love and isolation. All of this is what makes up our story. It is our story, it is the human story. The details and the backgrounds differ. The way that we respond to a variety of different experiences also differs from one person to another. Yet the human story and our personal story shares some central and fundamental themes. It's also true that our personal story is set within another story, which is the story of life that again began before we were born and continues after we die. And the story of life has its own chapters, its own themes, and its own truths. Our personal story can never be separated from the story of life. The story of life is the ground and the foundation of our personal story. They are never separate. There are moments, though, when our personal story resists the story of life, where we have a version to the life story or feel ourselves in conflict with it. There are moments when we feel perhaps even to be victimized or overwhelmed by the life story. There are moments when we try and separate our personal story 
from the life story and its truths. And those moments when we try to separate our personal story from what is true in the life story, those are moments of conflict. Those are moments of disharmony and confusion. It is like trying to grow a plant after we've cut off its roots or trying to take an in-breath and not breathe out. There are other moments when our personal story is very much aligned with, in harmony with, the truth of life and its story. And they are moments of peace and harmony. They are moments of rapport and happiness. A spiritual path is a path of endeavoring to understand what is true and to live in a spirit of truth. It is also a path of letting go of all that is false and no longer living in a spirit of falsehood. A spiritual path is a path of exploring our story and exploring the life story and discovering where it is that there is harmony and where it is that there is separation. And this evening I'd like to explore some of the themes of our personal story and the life story and to look at where there is harmony and where there is disconnection and perhaps to look at the ways that we might need to connect our personal story more deeply and more clearly with what is true in the life story. Shared within both our personal story and the story of life is the theme of birth and death, the theme of beginnings and endings. This is a theme that is endlessly repeated in the story of life, in nature, in other people, and in all things. It is the most naked truth of the life story, that there is birth and death, beginnings and endings. It is the most fundamental truth of our personal story. There may be many times in our lives and in our personal story where we are very tempted to skip over this theme, to pretend that it doesn't exist. In the Dharma story, this theme of beginnings and endings of birth and death is a theme that is endlessly highlighted. In the story of Siddhartha, death was one of the four heavenly messengers that Siddhartha encountered in his first journey outside of the palace. Death was one of the heavenly messengers that inspired Siddhartha to set out on a journey of exploration. In, in the Buddhist tradition, the reflection upon death is considered to be one of the most important reflections that actually turns the mind and heart towards understanding and towards wisdom. Within the Buddhist tradition, there are some what we might consider strange practices that highlight this perception and this understanding of death. And to us, we think that they're strange because we live in a culture, of course, that's 
not very welcoming of dying. Um, and live in a culture often where we, we attempt to practice immortality. One of the traditions of, of Buddhism is to encourage people to go and meditate in cemeteries. I mean, that sounds pretty weird, you know. I mean, it's, it's been done over centuries to go and meditate in burial grounds. Another of the reflections in the Buddhist tradition is to reflect upon the disintegration of the body. You know, to look at the body in terms of its 32 constituent parts, you know, very few of which are pleasant. Um, and to just stay with that reflection. And I think sometimes we listen to those kind of teachings and those meditations and we think, boy, they're really morbid, you know. And, uh, you know, and I think especially more lately in our culture, you know, there is more of an inclination towards celebrating the body and respecting the body and all of those things which are really very wonderful and very necessary, which at times perhaps seem very incompatible with these teachings that ask us to look upon how this body has started to dissolve from the moment that it appeared. But these meditations in the Buddhist tradition are not encouraged in order to cultivate a sense of aversion for the body. That is a misunderstanding of these teachings. These teachings are, and reflections are encouraged within the Buddhist tradition in order to bring forth in the light of those reflections a sense of urgency and passion for our own journey of understanding so that death doesn't come like a thief as if it doesn't happen to us. There's the encouragement through those meditations to seek for what is called in this tradition the deathless and the unborn. Ramakrishna once said, bodies are like pillowcases. They put them on and they drop off. In the Tibetan tradition, there is the encouragement to do this reflection, which sounds pretty outlandish, where you visualize and reflect upon the life of a blind tortoise who lives at the bottom of a deep ocean. And on the top of the ocean, there floats a golden ring. <clears throat> and once every 500 years or 500 centuries or whatever it is, this blind tortoise comes to the surface of the ocean and what are its chances of putting its head through the golden ring? Quite small, you would think. So too is it said, so too is it so rare that we have the capacity to be born in this life with the capacity to understand, with the freedom to understand, with the capacity to discover wisdom and liberation. And it doesn't take a whole lot of reflection to see how true that is in our world. Sometimes I, I am personally filled with a tremendous sense of gratitude to be able to do this, aware of you know, in different cultures I've been in, how much of life is dedicated to just staying alive, to just having enough to eat, to just looking for shelter, to just avoiding danger. 
to just staying away from, from harm. And to be able to be here is a tremendous gift. It is the only place in this life with this capacity that there is a possibility of awakening and possibility of freedom. Plato once said, true seekers are always occupied in the practice of dying. In the story of life, there is this truth of beginnings and endings, of birth and death, an undeniable truth, one that is not always difficult to reconcile with our own desires and wants in this life. And yet our resistance to this undeniable truth brings heartbreak. Ali once said, it is astonishing that anyone, even while seeing others die all around, should forget death. Many times we forget death. It is a truth. It is equally true that the moment of our death is unpredictable and is unknown to us. Some of you may have been here on the retreat that I taught this springtime and perhaps remember that we had someone who was a, a woman who was a practice leader, you know, a longtime friend in yogi, who before leaving the retreat spoke to me about her excitement of traveling across America this summer on a bicycle, a new adventure. That was what she said to me when she left the retreat. Two weeks later, she was told she was dying. This is a truth we struggle with. We don't always welcome it. We don't always want to know this. Yet the underlying teaching of dying, the actuality of death, the lesson that it offers us is to endlessly encourage us that the truth about dying is also the truth about living. It is the truth about our lives. Just as the moment of our death is unknown and unpredictable to us, so too are all of the moments in our lives. None of us can truly predict what the next moment will bring. None of us can guarantee what challenges or joys life will bring to us. None of us, through dreaming, through hoarding, through strategies, can armor ourselves against the inevitable changes that will occur in our lives. Impermanence, change, these are the ongoing themes of the life story. Sometimes we welcome these themes in moments of distress, in moments of elation and excitement and pleasure. We tend to suffer immense and deep cases of amnesia. Our personal story struggles with this chapter of the life story because so much of our sense of self rests upon being secure, approved of, and invulnerable. And so, so much of our sense of self rests upon ignoring the life story, instead endlessly seeking to have and to hold onto people, possessions, pleasures, dreams, images, and expectations. Our sense of being someone 
when our sense of self is confined and limited to what we have, what we can keep hold of, our sense of being someone rests upon all of this holding. And yet life is such a persistent teacher. Have you found one single thing, a person, an experience, a thought, a feeling, that you have been able to hold unchanging, aloof and separate from change? No. Yet we heroically try, we heroically try, slow learners, one might say, We have a good sitting. Oh, we can't wait to repeat it. How will we make it last? How will we maintain it? We have a delightful thought. Oh, yes, I want it to continue and have more of them. We have a difficult sitting and think it's going to last forever. We have a mental state and think it is permanent, as if this can ever be a life sentence. Not seeing the life story deeply, it seems that we suffer. But we don't suffer because of life. We suffer because of desperately wanting to grasp the ungraspable, to control the uncontrollable, and to sustain the unsustainable. In doing this, we are fighting the very life that we are part of. We are fighting the very life that we are part of. Recently, I watched a documentary that featured, it was about this man in Texas, this 85-year-old man, who had promised half of his fortune to anyone who could discover the cure for aging. This was his dream. This was his dream. It is his dream. He's still alive. In trying to banish the truth of dying, the truth of endings from our heart and awareness, we also banish the truth of living. In trying to banish an understanding of change, we are trying to banish the nature of life. We are also banishing our capacity to be touched and learn from the preciousness of each moment. Last year, a friend was diagnosed with breast cancer. She called me the next day. She said, what an awakening. She said, yesterday I was immortal. Today I'm mortal. She said, it feels like I've been given a whole new life. I have nothing to do now but to be awake. The lesson, the most important lesson that is offered to us in the life story, the most important lesson we learn from birth and death, from beginnings and endings, is to deeply see that the practice of dying well with grace and ease is equally the practice of living well with grace and ease. To open and to see this moment fully to be touched deeply by this moment and all that it brings to us, we are required to let go of the last moment. Think of how we meet the people that we love and the people that we hate. Think of how we listen to a bird. 
Think of how we look upon a tree. Can we know anything truly in this moment if we burden this moment with all that we have known before? Can we look at that person that we hate and see them freshly and openly if we see only our memories and associations? Can we see deeply the person that we love if we cannot also appreciate the way that they are endlessly changing on a moment-to-moment level? Can we listen clearly to a bird if our mind is already complaining that its song is not as clear as the bird we listened to yesterday? Can we look at a tree fully if our mind has already made it into a piece of furniture? So too with ourselves. Can we see ourselves openly and deeply in this moment if we are so filled with agendas and expectations and judgments and comparisons and the history of the moment that has already gone by? Can we open to this moment as it truly is if our reference point for this moment is always what was or what should be? And to think, to question, What does any of this actually have to do with what is? This moment has never been in exactly this way before. Letting go of the past, of what was, of what should be, is actually a gift. It liberates other people. It liberates the world. It liberates ourselves from what has already gone by. And what has already gone by is preserved only in our thoughts and only in our holding, liberating all, of th- all things from what has gone by is what allows them to be, allows, is what allows us to be. This capacity to see all things anew is really what this practice is about the capacity to see all things anew, to see ourselves anew, to enter into each moment like a visitor, like the first time. It seems like a gift, and yes, yet if it is such a gift, why do we so struggle so much with it? We struggle because the I story in the midst of the life story, has a different agenda. An agenda that is not so much to do with letting go, but with holding. Not so much to do with allowing, but with securing. Not so much to do with being a visitor, but with being a permanent residence in a reliable universe. In the I story we see a lot of different themes. We see the theme of wanting, wanting security, wanting safety, wanting identity, wanting permanence. So, of course, the I story is actually a really busy story, made even busier because it has such a long history. There are so many chapters that have already gone by in the I story. Our memories and fears about what has hurt us, what has brought us pleasure, what we fear, what we want, what we felt comfortable in, what we felt uncomfortable in, what we felt uplifted by, what we felt threatened by, 
You know, the I story has a long memory. And so we become very busy in this moment because this moment is always referring, you know, to this encyclopedia of memory. It is rare then, given this wealth of information that the I story carries with it, it is rare that we ever, ever find this moment as I want it to be. It's not offering what I want. Then, if it's not what I want it to be, if it's not offering what I want, what do I do? Do I let it go? That's not usually the path that is followed. Usually, that letting go it would be the path that would be followed if we could understand the life story. In ignoring it, instead, we become very busy. If this moment isn't just as I like it, then we think, well, I can probably fix it, or else I can find the experience that fits in with my expectations, or else maybe I can force change upon another person or upon myself. If I can't do that, I could probably try to avoid this moment that I don't like, or I could try and mold it into the moment that I think it should be. If we look at all of this busyness of the I story, then a good question to ask ourselves would be, how much harmony and peace is there actually in all this busyness? Usually that question doesn't arise because we're too busy to ask it. But how much harmony and peace is there in all of this busyness? We don't have to look very far for the answers. Look at our relationships, our life, our experience here. The life story, sadly it seems, does not appear obliged to respond to this vast variety of desires and expectations and wants that we bring to it. The life story continues to surprise us. Other people continue to surprise us. Sometimes we even surprise ourselves. And quite honestly, to learn and to deepen as a human being, we need to be ready to be surprised. And how are we ready to be surprised? By letting go of what has gone by by not wanting and yearning for what has yet to come. And we are ready to be surprised by resting without holding in what is. This is peace. This is harmony. This is not a surrender of effort or vision or direction or commitment. It is a surrender of separation and a surrender of the gulf of suffering that lies between what is and what should be, between what is and what might be or what was. Another fundamental theme of the life story is what is called in the Buddhist tradition dukkha. Now sometimes dukkha is translated as being suffering and pain. Now this is one level one translation, one layer of translation of this word dukkha. Certainly we know about suffering and pain because it comes in so many different guises. We know about the pain of our bodies, 
the pain of frailty and illness, the pain of loss. We know the suffering, the pain of our hearts, the pain of grief, of unfulfilled longings, the pain of anger and fear. We also know pretty well the suffering that the mind can go through, the suffering of confusion, the suffering of obsessions, the suffering of non-acceptance, the suffering of resistance, the suffering of not getting what we want and of getting what we don't want, the suffering of judgment. There is a whole lot of pain it's possible to experience in this life, and probably by this point in our lives, we probably touched on a whole lot of it. In knowing pain and in knowing suffering, sometimes deeply, sometimes we also come to fear suffering very deeply. Dukkha has another translation, which is not about pain. Dukkha has the translation of unsatisfactoriness, the unsatisfactoriness of simply being conditioned. Now, this understanding of dukkha applies not only to that which is painful, but also to that which is pleasant. This translation of dukkha, of unsatisfactoriness, which is very primary in this teaching, is neither positive or negative. It is simply seeing into the nature of conditioned phenomena. Unsatisfactory is gain as well as loss is excitement as well as despair, is elation as well as depression, is praise as well as blame. Unsatisfactoriness is there because all things that are born are conditioned. All things that are born will also pass and dissolve. This applies to us. It applies to all of our experiences. Our bodies, our minds, the intensity of our longings and dramas, our crises and our conflicts, our moments of gain and elation, they are like the light of a firefly. They are gone in the space of a blink of an eye. This is simply their nature. Not negative, not positive. They are conditioned, they they are born and they pass away. Because all conditioned phenomena are impermanent, appearing and disappearing, they are empty of substantiality. They cannot be grasped. They cannot be taken hold of. Because all conditioned phenomena are impermanent and fleeting, the heart cannot find any lasting peace no lasting liberation within the world of conditioned phenomena. In Buddhist teaching, this understanding of the nature of conditioned phenomena, of appearing and dissolving, is not meant to be an incentive to be averse to the world. Neither is it meant to be an incentive to grasp and to hold more. 
It's not meant to be an incentive to try and make the imperfect perfect. It is meant to be an incentive to seek for grace and wisdom, to seek for that which is unconditioned, to seek for that which is called in the Buddhist tradition the timeless and the deathless, to seek for the radiant, the luminous, and the limitless. In our life story, we know suffering. Sometimes our experience of it means that we want to avoid it or fix it or to deny it, but not always to understand it deeply. But I think we do need to understand that none of our strategies of avoidance or denial can ever be more than temporary solutions for the unpleasant. Our bodies, our minds, our personal world are our constant companions in this life. They bring with them the capacity for immense confusion and pain. They equally bring with them the capacity for profound peace and wisdom and for understanding that is liberating. In California, I saw a t-shirt that said, suffering is optional. And to some extent, this is true. It is true that much suffering is born of patterns of confusion, that much suffering is born of misunderstanding, of patterns of confusion. Resistance, craving, attachment, identification, being lost in images or expectations, in angers or judgments, or being lost anywhere at all. Suffering follows all of these patterns of confusion just as night follows day. And we don't need to look very far in our experience to understand this. It is also true that these patterns of confusion are not necessary. They are not intrinsic to being human. And because the patterns of suffering and patterns of confusion are not necessary, neither is suffering necessary. Neither is the suffering that comes with it. Awareness introduces us to a way of being in which we no longer feel bound to follow these patterns of confusion. Awareness introduces us to a way of seeing in which we begin to see new pathways, new possibilities in our lives, in our being, in our relationships in which we are open to the possibility of making wise choices, of letting go, of fostering, and learning the art of acceptance, of equanimity, of letting go, of peace. And I can almost guarantee, can almost guarantee, that the clarity that can be born of this practice will actually liberate all of us from a whole range of these patterns of confusion and suffering. However, we also need to be a little cautious about something of a new philosophy that's being handed around, which says that there is no suffering in the world, that suffering is only in our relationship to the world. You may have heard this. 
It seems to me that this philosophy can be an invitation to a whole lot more judgment that says, you know, oh, I have pain in my life and I have conflict in my life and if I was more accepting, more generous, more loving, more compassionate, more open, more wise, then I wouldn't have this suffering. Sometimes, too, this philosophy is an invitation, it seems to me, to yet more endeavors to fix and to perfect and towards an exaggerated sense of responsibility. In many ways, it is true to say that there is a whole ocean of suffering that lies in unclear and unwelcome relationships to life. That there's an ocean of suffering that is born of likes and dislikes and preferences. And that in letting go of likes and dislikes and preferences and all of these things of the mind and heart, we also let go of much suffering because we let go of the mechanisms of suffering. And we come to deeper levels of acceptance and forgiveness and wakefulness that transforms, it does transform, our relationship to events, to experiences, to circumstances, to people, and to ourselves, transforms us in ways so that we relate to events and circumstances that we previously found crippling or overwhelming. We suddenly find there is equanimity, there is balance, there is steadiness, there is understanding. So that is one level of transformation, and that is one level of change that comes. But on a deeper level, in Buddhist teaching, dukkha and unsatisfactoriness is really not just about the unpleasant. It's not just about the events or the circumstances or the experiences in our lives. Nor is dukkha or unsatisfactory just about our personal relationship to them. Dukkha unsatisfactoriness is instead seen to be the nature of conditioning, the nature of being conditioned. And that dukkha is the experience of believing ourselves to be only conditioned, to be bound and limited, conditioned by the world of our bodies, our minds, our objects and experiences. And in this level of understanding unsatisfactoriness, it really doesn't matter how pleasant or how calm we manage to make our world or ourselves. Still, this world of conditioned phenomena is still subject to the nature and law of all conditioned things that are born and die, that rise and pass, that form and are dissolved that begin and end. And within that which is conditioned, freedom cannot be found. In seeing this deeply, this is actually the motivation, the true motivation, to turn our hearts to what, understanding what it actually means to be free. The Buddha once said, there is disciples, an unborn, unbecome, unmade, unformed. 
If there were not this unborn, unformed, there would be no freedom from that which is born, become, made, and formed. But because there is an unborn, unmade, unformed, there is freedom. Huang Po put it a little differently in saying, Our original Buddha nature is in its highest truth devoid of any atom of objectivity. It is void, silent, pure. It is glorious and mysterious, peaceful joy, and that is all. Enter deeply into it by awakening to it yourself. That which is before you is it in all its fullness, utterly complete. In the moment of realization, you will only be realizing the Buddha nature that has been with you all of the time, and you will have added nothing. You will come to look upon all the aeons of work and achievement as no better than unreal actions performed in a dream. It is why the Buddha said, I attained nothing from complete, unexcelled enlightenment. We have a couple of moments quietly together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.